0: Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, readers. Thank you so much for listening today. I am going to share an interview with Valerie Fraser-Lussey. She is the best-selling author of Missing Isaac, Almost Home, and The Key to Everything, as well as an award-winning magazine writer best known for her feature stories and essays in Southern Living, where she is currently senior travel editor. Valerie's latest book, Under the Bayou Moon, releases August 3rd, so this interview comes out just in time for you to go grab that as a pre-order but I think you're going to enjoy my conversation with Valerie today. We talk about how she got into writing for Southern Living and how she then got into writing novels and um, her first book won a Christie so that's an exciting conversation always. Um, so I really hope you enjoy this conversation and I will quit babbling and just let you listen to Valerie and I discuss Under the Bayou Moon. Valerie, thank you for joining me on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you.
0: Yeah, your latest novel, Under the Bayou Moon, is releasing on August 3rd. Can you tell me about this book?
1: Sure. Um I got inspired by this place that I think, well, well, several things. I think all of us have moments in our life when we feel like we just aren't where we're supposed to be. You know, we just aren't doing what we're meant to do. We aren't who we're meant to be. And that's yeah. the situation for the protagonist in this book, um, Ellie Fields. She's uh, in her 20s. She's a school teacher in Alabama. It's right after World War II. And she just doesn't feel like she's doing what she's meant to do. And so she takes a chance and accepts a job in a rural, very rural town in Louisiana Bayou country, a fictional town called Bernadette, Louisiana. And her sole focus is on, you know, finding her purpose in life. But, of course, as life works, um, we often get some little um curveballs thrown at us so on the way to Bernadette she stops over to see New Orleans for the first time and she meets this very charismatic photographer named Haywood Thornberry and they become immediate friends they hit it off right away and then once she goes to Bernadette she uh, meets a Cajun fisherman who's a little bit older than her he she finds out he's had a family tragedy and he is raising his young nephew by himself. And so oh. the three of them interact throughout the novel. They have a very special bond, all all three of them. And it's not your a love triangle, as you would expect, but they sort of operate around each other and connect with each other in, in an interesting way. So I hope mm-hmm. readers will have fun with that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like fun. Um, so what inspired you to write this novel?
1: Well, uh, I work for Southern Living Magazine, um, and I, uh, many years ago, did a story on Acadian Louisiana, and it started out with a very misguided story concept, which was the occasion for the weekend, which, you know, as if you could take on the mantle of this hundreds years old (laughs) culture, (laughs) you know, in a weekend. So I very quickly learned the error of my ways through some of the um, folks that I met there in Louisiana. We changed it to a really in-depth. Look at this rich and wonderful culture, and um, mm-hmm. it was inspiring. The landscape was inspiring. The bayou was inspiring, and I learned that um, in I think it was the the twenties there was this real push on the part of the federal government for assimilation, and to them that meant everybody speaks English. And so mm-hmm. these Cajun children who had been speaking French with their families, you know, their families had been speaking it for centuries were punished mm-hmm. in school if they spoke French. And that, coupled with some other things, almost stamped out uh, Cajun French from Louisiana. And oh, wow. it, had, it was very sad to think of having your language taken away from you. So I sort of made Ellie a champion of those children uh, and yeah. you know, just refusing to do that.
0: Wow, that's cool. I mean, the novel, not the <laughs> push to get rid of Cajun French. Can you tell me how you went about researching for this book then once you had the idea? I mean, you already knew a little bit from, from the article, but.
1: Exactly. I had, um, I really had to just focus on a lot of my research has to do with making sure I'm accurate for the time. So mm-hmm. I knew what the area was like and I knew the history of the Acadian people. I had to be careful about where, where were they in terms of their connection with the world around them in the late 1940s um and you know what was new orleans like in the 1940s and what kind of you know details like that um i read somewhere this was years ago and i'm probably quoting it wrong but eudora welty said that she had a writing teacher or a or someone who was just advising her on writing and he said always get the moon in the right place in the sky meaning you know if you get the easy details wrong you're going to pull people out of the your story. So mm. I always try to be accurate so that I don't stumble. And then, of course, I had to use um, some pretty serious resources to try and get what little Cajun French I used correct because I don't speak the language. But uh, it turns out that some of the authorities I had interviewed um, had produced a Cajun, Cajun to English, Cajun French to English dictionary. And that was very helpful to me because I didn't want Mm. to use a lot of French, but just enough to flavor it a little. And it was really important to me to make sure I got that right. So that was probably the biggest thing was making sure I used the right phrases.
0: Right. Okay. Um, So what do you want readers to take away from this book?
1: I want to put them there. And that's the travel writer in me, I guess. Um, Mm. I want them to feel like they're there. Um, and really the biggest compliment I've gotten on my books is that a lot of people tell me they feel like they're watching them instead of reading them. And that's not, yeah, it's not something intentional, you know, it's just, I guess, a function of all those years as a travel writer. Um, that's your job, you know, to make people want to go there. Um, so I, I, hope that they get a real sense of and appreciation for, Louisiana, Bayou country. I hope they have a real appreciation for Acadian culture, but I really want them to care about these people because I think if you if you don't care about the characters, it doesn't really matter what happens to them, you know.
0: Right, right.
1: So I want them to really love these characters. I want them to have trouble deciding who they want Ellie to end up with, <laughs> 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 yeah, no, and and just really appreciate Louisiana because it's it's a one of a kind place.
0: Mm, wow. That's neat. So I understand that you were born and raised in the Southern United States. So how does that influence your writing?
1: It's all I write about. I mean, I yeah. just don't, I don't really want to set books anyplace else because um, I just think the South is so rich for one thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, I've been a working writer all of my adult life, but I'm new to fiction. I've only been at this for I think my first book came out in 2018. So okay. um, anchoring them in a place that I understand mm-hmm. um, helps me um, because I, I need that one thing to make it real. And so I'm always going to anchor my stories in the South. Now, fortunately, I've, I've been all over the South, the Southern living, and there are so many distinct cultural pockets in the South. To explore. I mean, if you're talking about from the Outer Banks of North Carolina Mm
0: -hmm. to
1: the Texas Hill Country to the deep south to the Bayous, the mountains, you know, there's plenty to work with. And it's just my cultural language.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then you mentioned that some of your novels have been inspired by by your own family history. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me about that?
1: Oh, sure. Um, My mother is the youngest of eight children. And um, she never left home. You know, when she married, she and daddy lived with my grandmother. And then Mm -hmm. I came along. And that that was our situation until they saved up enough money to build their own house. And then my grandmother moved right in with us. So Mm -hmm. we were always the gathering place for her big extended family. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s. So, you know, there, there wasn't any such thing as you know, internet or cell phones or Xbox or whatever. And so we told stories. That was our way of entertaining each other, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I figured out at a very young age that if I would behave myself and be quiet, the grownups would forget I was there <laughs> and I would get to hear <laughs> all these stories. And they talked about the old days and their grandparents and the old farm days. And I, and I just loved it, you know? Um, and I, mm-hmm. I do think my family is is pretty interesting in terms of the things they've experienced. I mean, my my maternal grandmother, who, you know, I knew all of for many many years. Um, she was born in I think 1896, something like that. So their memories go back to some or went back to some very interesting times. She's of course since passed away, but mm-hmm. she lived into her 90s. So. Wow. You know, you're talking about somebody who lived from mules to astronauts. Right. You know, it's just amazing. And so those stories just really come into my writing all the time. Just, it, sometimes it's the whole thing and sometimes um, it's just a little element of one, mm-hmm. you know, that I'll use. Um, or it might just be a setting. Um, but they, they very much influence my, my stories.
0: So can you give me an example? Like, is is there anything in um, Under the Bayou Moon that came from your family history?
1: Well, the, the thing that the book is dedicated to teachers, uh, especially my Aunt Patsy, who was a, a gifted teacher, and she was very into history. And in the book, Ellie is is really interested in making these children aware of their Cajun history and Be proud of it and celebrate it because they've they've been made to feel ashamed, you know, Mm -hmm. by people around them. And so Aunt Patsy's love of of history and of teaching children um, and helping them to appreciate their own community. That was very much you know part of my family. There's probably a lot more of it in the first and second books. Those were both set in small Alabama towns. Um, The second book I wrote, which is called Almost Home. Um, mm-hmm. was set during World War II and this was very much the setting was a true one. My great aunt and great uncle turned their family home into a boarding house during the okay. war because there were so many people moving south to work in all the munitions plants wanting anywhere for them to live. And so Southerners were still trying to get over the depression. You know, they were still broke. And so this was an opportunity to make some money. And uh, so I created this setting of A southern, an older southern couple opening their their grand but kind of weathered old southern home to complete strangers, and you bring all these people under one roof together. So that was very much based on a family story.
0: Oh, neat! That's really cool. So you won a Christie for your first novel. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. Tell me what that's like. First of all, tell me the name of the novel, and and then tell me what that experience was like for you.
1: Okay. Um, The first book was called Missing Isaac, and um, it had elements of family stories in it, particularly the setting um, where the sharecropping characters, the story live in a hollow. And that was a a real place. Um, But Missing Isaac is a story of a young white boy who loses his father just as the book opens. It's on about the second page of the book. And his mother is very wealthy. Her family is landed. And, you know, so this young white boy has has grown up well. Um, But after his father dies, there is a black field hand named Isaac Reynolds who takes him under wing and, um, you know, just kind of becomes a bit of a father figure to him. And then Isaac disappears. And so this young boy decides, you know, as as a kid will do, um, they're going to do something that they're going to do something about the situation. And so he sets out to find Isaac. And that search takes him deep into uh, a hollow um, where he meets a young girl named uh, Debbie Pickett. He doesn't realize at the time that their families are connected. Um, But as the story evolves. His name is Pete. Pete McLean. Uh, as the story evolves, Pete and Debbie both grow up. Their bond to each other grows. Um, they discover some things about their community that they didn't know, um, and together they find out what happened to Isaac and what that means. And it it really explores the the you know the racial divide, the economic divide mm-hmm. um, in this small southern community. And it won the Christie for best first novel. Oh, it was completely mind blowing! I took my parents <laughs> and my husband, and we went to Nashville. And I never—I told my publishers, "I, said, I never win anything. I'm the queen of honorable mention. I Aww. will not win." And so the way they announce the winners is they read the first line of the winning novel, and then they call out the yes, the title. And when they started reading that first line. I know my mouth flew open and I just went, my mother wheeled around and looked at me. I said, I think I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, she did. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So it was this, you know, amazing moment to accept that award. Cause it, 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 I just couldn't believe it. I really couldn't.
0: Right. Well, that's wonderful. Um, so can you share a little bit about your career path? You mentioned that you... Work for Southern Living. You're a senior travel editor for Southern Living. Mm -hmm. Um, So, how did you get started doing that job and how did you begin writing novels then?
1: I think I've always tried to write stories even when I was a little kid. You know, I've just always written one way or another. So, it's kind of just always there. Um, But I studied English at Auburn University and Baylor University. And I always wanted to work for Southern Living because. I didn't want to move out of the South then um, and Southern living was like the thing if you wanted to, you know, work for a magazine in the South. So I, I and it was right in Birmingham. So it was close to my home and um, I tried and tried for years. And back then, I mean, you, you just had to wait for somebody to retire to get a job with that company because, Um, It was such a great place to work. Nobody wanted to leave. Um, Mm -hmm. So I applied and applied and got rejected and got rejected. And I finally got a job Um, while I was in college. I met someone who had left Southern Living to go to grad school at Baylor. She introduced me to Martha Johnston, who was the director of the Southern Living Cooking School, which was a a traveling show back then. Mm -hmm. And Martha hired me as the summer help. While I was in college. And then she just became a mentor and, you know, banged on doors to get managers over there to look at my resume. And so it went on for a period of years, really, um, with me trying to get my foot in the door. And so I finally got a job as the editor. Uh, They had an employee magazine back then. The corporation did, the parent company of Southern Living, which was called Southern Progress Corporation. And they were owned by Time Inc. in New York. And so um, I, you know, cut my teeth on that employee magazine um, and Southern living people were real involved with it. And so they really taught me everything. I mean, I could put a sentence together when I got there, but it was those Southern living writers that, you know, took me under wing and and taught me everything about doing interviews and Mm. um, getting a good quote and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I was in corporate communications for 10 years. And then I did about a year um, on a magazine development team where we were trying to launch new magazines. And then the editor at Southern Living who recently, uh, John Floyd was the longtime editor in chief. He recently passed away, Uh, but he, he talked me into coming to Southern Living, which I didn't want to do because it was huge back then. I mean, it had maybe, hundred and thirty or forty people on the staff and I just thought, oh my gosh, I can't hold my own among those people. I was so intimidated. <laughs> but they were great. And um and so I, I stayed there um till two thousand and ten. Um mm-hmm. the recession had hit and really changed things and a lot a lot of layoffs and I I just finally thought, well it's gonna happen to me sooner or later. So I left and I freelanced for five years. But then uh, the new editor in chief, Sid Evans, and Chrissy Tiglius, he's the executive editor. Um, they hired me to do some work for them as a freelancer, and then um, the next thing I knew, they put my name on a door, and <laughs> and I've been back. So oh, that's um, as, great. as their senior travel editor, so um, it's been it's been wonderful. I mean, it's a uh, it's a great staff, and. Much smaller than the one I worked on before, but very, very talented, very hardworking. And um, uh, so, yeah, I've had a second chapter at the same magazine, actually. Right.
0: That's neat. Mm -hmm. Um, So then what prompted you to delve into novel writing? Was that always, you said you always have loved writing stories, Mm -hmm. but um, what made you take that, that leap to try to get published?
1: Well, the short answer is misery. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I had dabbled with short stories, but mm-hmm. around, I'd say 2008 or 2009, um, our, our company was hit really hard by the recession. Mm. Lots of layoffs, people leaving by the hundreds, eventually, um, people crying in the hallways and this place that had always been. A safe and happy very familial kind of place yeah was suddenly very scary and sad and I wasn't sleeping and mm. and one morning I was up at 3 a.m watching the same law and order rerun for the umpteenth time and I just said you know there's got to be something else I can do with this time. I've accepted that I'm not gonna sleep ever again <laughs> oh. so I'm gonna do something <laughs> so I dusted off a short story. Mm -hmm. It had been typewritten because I wrote it when I was in college. So there were no Macs back then. Right. So I just started typing. You know, I got out my laptop and started set to work in our guest room so I wouldn't wake up my husband. Mm -hmm. And there was just such joy that I really wasn't even thinking about publishing. I I was just experiencing the joy of creative freedom, of fearless creative freedom. You know, there's nothing anybody can do to this or about this because it's mine and it was really great therapy for me it helped me get through some really tough times um when I knew that what I was going to be facing once I went to the office was not going to be good but I had you know these maybe two three hours in the wee hours. When I could just be creatively free. And as I wrote more and more, I started to get more serious about it. and then I showed some pages to some friends and they always wanted to see more. Um, and sort of just one thing led to another. I, um, I had a good buddy named Tanner Latham. He's a multimedia storyteller, and mm-hmm. back then he was freelancing, so I hired Tanner uh, to be my editor. So I'd send him three or four chapters and we'd meet at this little cafeteria in Birmingham called the Paw Patch and order some fried green tomatoes <laughs> and talk about my characters. <laughs> and um, so it was just joyful, you know, and then uh, I didn't have any success in finding a publisher for quite a few years. And then when I was working again at Southern Living, um, I was hired to be the lead writer on their 50th anniversary book about their 50th celebrating their 50th anniversary. And the editor that was hired to oversee my work was from New York. And she had just started a literary agency and we hit it off. Her name's Leslie Stoker. She's with Stoker mm-hmm. literary over time. She ended up signing me and you know, sent out the manuscript and it landed with, um, Kelsey Bowen at, um, books. Kelsey was interested in the South and was very supportive, has always been very supportive of my work. Um, and it just happened that way. So I'm the worst person in the world to ask how to do this. I stumbled into it.
0: (laughs) Well, that's okay. I, I just love hearing all the different stories because everybody's path is so varied I mean it's there's there are no two the same
1: It's true so. and I you know I didn't set out to write Christian fiction I just wanted to tell a good story and it just so happened that the people I was interested in writing about um, in the south in the 1960s in a small southern town they would have been people of faith they would have gone to church right um, they would have lived by a certain moral code. And Mm -hmm. once I got into that, I did have a conscious desire to present Christians the way I know them to be, not the extremes that you see on a lot of movies. You know, we're either crazy fanatics or we're evil hypocrites or, you know. And I just wanted to show that a typical Christian is just a person who's striving and seeking to follow right. of God and they're going to stumble and they're not perfect. Um, yeah. But they're, they're trying to do the right thing and they're trying to do what they think God wants them to do. So it just kind of became a natural part of the story. And then when Leslie um, and I were talking, she said, you know, she asked me if I had a market in mind. And of course I didn't even know what the markets were. Uh, I didn't <laughs> know what the genres were. And yeah. it, it I was reluctant to do Christian fiction at first because I thought, well, is that going to just pigeonhole me
0: and
1: not going to be able. But then I thought, well, I don't really see me writing anything that wouldn't be acceptable to that genre. Um, Because mama's going to read it. (laughs) Preacher's going to read it. (laughs) So I thought, well, you know, it's not like I'm going to want to write something that, would be inappropriate for this audience anyway. The difference is just putting a name to it. So right. that's what we did. And um uh, and it's it's been a really great relationship with Reveal. Really great.
0: Good. Wonderful. Um so this was this is your fourth book, is that right? That's correct. And then are you working on another one now?
1: I'm a, probably going to sign that contract today. Oh um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I sent Kelsey uh, about five or six ideas, and they really yeah. liked two of them, and so I've agreed to write two more books for Reveille, which I was very excited that they uh, wanted me to. And uh, yeah, um, that's wonderful. So it's it's exciting to continue. I got an email from Leslie this morning telling me I would probably get the contract today um, to to sign. So yeah. So yeah, I'll be doing
0: two more. Wonderful. So this is a question I ask all my guests: How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present?
1: That's a very good question. Um, (laughs) That's why I ask it. Of all. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's always something to to learn. Mm -hmm. You know. to To learn from the past. You know, when I think about the pandemic and everything we've been through right. with COVID and my mother said, well, you know, your grandmother went through this with the Spanish flu and they were so afraid mm-hmm. they lost neighbors. She was so afraid that her brother got sick and she was afraid he was going to die. Um, so mother's thing is, you know, everybody goes through hardship. Every generation goes through hardship and you can learn something by the way your ancestors got through things and accepted things and faced them head on, you know, and it it also helps you um, by comparison, you know, the whole COVID experience has been the hardest thing, you know, I've been through, but My grandmother lived through two world wars and mm-hmm. um, the Vietnam War. She lost relatives in wars. She lost a son mm-hmm. to hit. Um, the past was hard. I mean, we romanticize it, but it <laughs> yes. was hard. Um, my grandmother's sister died of tuberculosis when she was twenty-eight. Um, mm. so disease and sickness and illness have have plagued humankind always Um, and it's tragic and it's, it's very hard to get through, but I I think you can look to the examples of the past to see what to do and what not to do. You know, you can see the mistakes of the past. You can see things could have been so much better if this one thing had changed. So I, I, I love history. I always have. Um, And I do think it, it, It's very much, it can school us, can definitely school us.
0: Yeah, for sure. So Valerie, this has been a wonderful conversation. What's the best way for listeners to follow you?
1: Well, I'm on Facebook. They can just, I I started out trying to separate my book, uh, social media presence from my personal one, and it just was confusing. So they're welcome any place they want to find me. Uh, Valerie Fraser lessie on Facebook, Valerie Fraser lessie Books on Facebook, or ValerieFrazierLessie.com is my website. And they are, are welcome, maybe any of those uh, venues. I have a blog called Going Down to Mamas, and um, mm-hmm. they can also find that on, online.
0: Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm sorry it's over. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I thought we could maybe spend the whole afternoon together. <laughs> oh, that would be
0: nice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, you guys, I just love interviewing Southern authors. They are so hospitable. Even though like I'm the host, I feel like I was just having sweet tea with Valerie and um, she's just a sweetheart. So as usual, make sure you check out the show notes and there you can find links to Valerie's books, especially Under the Bayou Moon, which releases next Tuesday. Um, And also, as I always tell you guys, please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it and make sure you leave a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts that helps other listeners to find it. I am just so unfamiliar with other podcatchers So I'm sure that you can leave reviews on other other apps that you use to listen to um, this podcast. So wherever you listen to it, please leave a review and that would really help people find it. I know I repeat myself a lot with this stuff at the end of the podcast, but it is my job as a podcaster, because this podcast right now doesn't have any advertisers, so it's not generating any income on its own, um, to just let you know about the Patreon community that I'm working on over on patreon.com slash Allison Treat, Allison with one L, A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. You can find different benefits there if you are able to contribute monthly to the show. I would love to build the community that we have on there and provide those benefits to you. Um, And then of course you can join the free Facebook group that is at historical fiction unpacked podcast group on Facebook. You can search it or you can get there from the show notes and the show notes are at alisontreat.com slash blog. Also, I want to mention again, as I did the past two episodes, I believe I am a freelance editor, and I'm currently taking new clients for the fall. So if you are an author or an aspiring author, and you would like to get some editing, or you, or you even just you know want to get a quote, discuss your project, let me know what you're doing, be sure to shoot me an email, and that's Allison at alisontreat.com is my email where you can let me know about your project, or you can just go to my website, alisontreat.com and click on, get a quote. It's very simple there and straightforward. And I would love to hear from you. I also would just love to hear from you about the show. That's why, you know, I ask for reviews because it helps, it's going to help more people find the show, but also because it is really nice to know who is out there listening. And I get so excited when someone tells me in person, I listen to the podcast um or even if if I get an email telling me that they're enjoying the podcast any way that I hear from someone who's enjoying this podcast it's just a really big boost to my day so thank you for the encouragement and I would love to hear from you I do want to give you a little heads up that next week will be the last episode of this season and then I'm going to take a little break um I haven't decided exactly when I'm coming back, but it won't be long. It'll be about a month um, because I have interviews lined up. And I, of course, will need to release more episodes. So, but that will, the third season will start sometime in September. So, this is my second to last episode of the second season. And I want to leave you with a short quote about history. Of course, Norman Cousins said, History is a vast early warning system. So pay attention to history, my friends, and I will talk to you again next week.